0: right, welcome to episode 17 of Trade Secrets. We have a guest today, second guest, no, third guest, I believe. Super excited about David Mitros from um, Schneider Downs, and we're going to talk taxes um, at some point today, but before we do that, we're going to get into our current event, which is near and dear to Paige's heart-ish. She's wanted to talk about this a lot in the metaverse. We're not there are very
1: different. I think the metaverse is over already. I'm not real sure.
0: I don't think it's over. CB just announced they were going to have an office in the metaverse. But um, blockchain and Bitcoin, there has been some huge news recently. FTX, which was at like $3.1 billion, um, just filed for bankruptcy maybe three weeks ago. Today, BlockFi filed for bankruptcy. Um, What do you guys think about the wild world of...
1: Well, at first, Bitcoin. I have a question. I mean, I don't know if anyone here knows the answer, um, but you said at $3.1 billion, Yeah. But didn't Sequoia alone invest over $32 billion into FTX?
2: I think the number was higher than $3.1 billion.
0: Well, that's what they owed yeah. to their creditors when they um, filed. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Just to their top 50 creditors.
1: Okay. Well, either irrelevant. way. Irrelevant.
0: It's um, a lot of money.
1: A lot of money, kind of ironic. Um, another one filed for Chapter Eleven. To, I think today, right? Yeah, BlockFi. Um, I, I should have spread out my articles so that I can actually read it. Um, yeah. So I think the reason I thought that it would be an interesting thing to talk about, and we don't really even have to talk about it that much, but um, the tax implications, because that's what we're talking about today, of capital losses of that caliber, um, and how the implications of that versus tax write-offs for capital losses when it comes to investing in real estate.
0: Yeah, but let's Um, not go there yet. I mean, what like, the whole... Like, that's,
1: that's the roadmap. Yeah,
0: that's the roadmap. But you were like you were so, so let fast. Dave,
1: talk about who he is and what he does first.
0: Too. We're gonna win, too when we get to okay. taxes. This whole <laughs> thing has been day. off the rails. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's Kelsey's birthday today. There's nothing, nothing on the rails. But yeah, so I guess since Paige didn't want we'll to talk about Bitcoin, Dave, what's your take on Bitcoin after you give us a little brief introduction on? Your background and your role at Schneider Downs.
3: Yep. Uh, Dave Mitros. I'm a shareholder at Schneider Downs. Focus uh, a lot of my time uh, working with real estate investors, real estate developers. Um, so I uh, assist those clients with their annual tax compliance needs as well as planning and projections. And, you know, I've got this deal happening. What, you know, what would be the impact to me and my investors? Uh, so we, we assist our clients with a lot of uh, help. Uh, from a planning perspective in addition to just doing the tax returns each year. So I've uh, got several years of experience in that uh, industry at this point and uh, it's something I've I've really enjoyed at my, during my time at Schneider Downs. And for those listeners that aren't here in the Pittsburgh region, Schneider Downs is... is uh, many people? We've got 400 or so in Pittsburgh and 100 or so in Columbus, Ohio. Um, We're the Biggest regional firm in the Western Pennsylvania region. Uh we're in the top four in terms of number of professionals within Pittsburgh, including you know Deloitte, PwC, etc. So uh we have a big presence in the market, uh locally owned, uh have a lot of great local clients, um and uh, it's been a lot of fun.
0: Great. And national expertise with a uh, local flair mm-hmm. is how I would describe it. Yep. So well we're pumped to have you here. But you know, before we get into the whole real estate tax stuff, like yeah. have you guys seen any clients exposed to this Bitcoin experience and for the good or the bad or the ugly?
3: You know, it's interesting. Um, you know, several of my friends or otherwise colleagues have maybe invested in Bitcoin over the last couple of years, um, and they've had a little bit of a roller coaster ride. Uh, I don't see a ton of my clients investing in Bitcoin. Uh, read into that what you, what you will. Uh, but it is a question we need to ask every year um, because it's not, uh, or historically has not always been reported as easily to us on a 1099 at the end of the year that shows all your tax gains or losses. Um, so is it uh, like a standard question now on the annual? Is. Oh my
0: gosh, that's yeah. crazy, right?
3: And I typically only, I won't say only, but I typically make sure I ask that question to my younger clients. Uh, who I feel are have more potential to potentially invest in something like Bitcoin. So, um, yeah, not not a ton of experience in terms of reporting uh, or seeing what kinds of gains or losses have uh, been generated for my clients, um, but uh, certainly am aware of it, the roller coaster ride of the value of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency over the last few years and how that may impact a taxpayer. Uh, there's been a lot of guidance and regulation and um, information from the IRS in terms of how to treat that type of an asset uh, in your reporting on your tax return.
2: How, how is it treated differently from any other taxable event?
3: I think generally it's, uh, it's going to be treated similarly to if you own stock in a public company. Yeah. So you've got your basis, your buy-in amount. Uh, if you trade out of it or sell it at a value higher than your basis, you're going to recognize a gain that's going to be a capital gain. Uh, potentially, if you uh, sell at a value below your basis, you're going to generate a loss. Uh, that, and With those losses come all the same limitations that you might have on capital loss deductibility in the year of event um, that could potentially hang up some of those losses if they're significant.
0: I mean, at the end of the day, isn't it really just like penny trading on a really easily accessible platform?
2: With the idea that you can have accumulate a very large amount of pennies in a very, very short, short yeah. period of time. like But then the, the f-
1: next day the pennies might be good as air. Right. <laughs> if a, a the yeah. thing you're friend. buying pennies for goes away.
0: Just told me that they, with hundreds of dollars invested, uh, I don't think it was FTX, I forget which currency platform it was, just paid off their house. Hmm. Um, so it is real, but... They <laughs> made these articles, which again, who knows, this is a splash yeah, media, but...
2: Yeah, is that is that the thing that you always hear where, oh, he just made a killing in Vegas. Well, that doesn't tell you all the 20 <laughs> times you went to Vegas and left with, you know, uh, cab fare. Um, it's it's such a volatile thing, and currency in, an, in and of itself is a difficult thing to figure out. I mean, how, how valuable is United States currency? We're losing value daily, and yet the
1: I mean, stable
2: until uh, in, well, when compared to crypto. If there was no crypto, we'd be talking about our currency is, uh, you right. know, a little questionable. Let's just say.
0: Um, All right. Are you long or short? Are you buying or selling crypto?
1: Well, don't you have, to even have it yet. to sell it? <laughs>
0: I mean, right now, are you, you buying? You, you, you think it's going to be no here for
1: me, dog? You're out. <laughs> I'm out.
0: The youngest person at the table is out.
2: I am completely out. I was never in. I don't understand it. Um, no, I don't. It's to me. It's it's the ultimate shell game, and nothing against. I forget what the guy's name is. The couch potato with the fuzzy hair. Just a, you know, I mean, just if, if he's the guy who's the guy who's what's his name?
1: Sam Bankman. Bankman Freed.
2: Yeah. Yeah, uh, for, for somehow to, to say that that guy is worth a, a couple of billion dollars and worth investing our hard capital into, I'm just not buying it.
0: That's that. wild. So put
2: me down as a solid no. He, he
0: was a real soft no, Michael. Yeah,
2: was. yeah. So <laughs> yeah. we we'll put you down as a baby.
3: I'm a hard no, but I feel like I'm going to regret it.
2: <sighs>
3: How about you? I'm a hard no, and uh, same reason. I don't really understand it. Haven't spent a lot of time trying to learn it. Uh, I'll try to live with no regrets. Yeah, and he
1: likes to play with real money. <laughs> also. Yes, accounts. Okay. I, I, like to I, play I with can't
3: imagine money.
2: that your clients that are in real estate, physical, tangible assets, versus something that lives and dies in the ether. Nah,
0: that's a great transition because we wanted to talk about, you know, the whole uh, topic today was the tax advantages of being in real estate that don't exist in investing in bitcoin per se
1: or even the stock market necessarily yeah. right um, because we've had clients who've said like well if you know i'm i'm realizing a 9% cap rate on the disposition of this asset like and not to say that this is a correct statement but was my money and time and effort and energy would that have been better spent in the stock market um, so and I think in instances like that, there are, um, you know, cost segregations and and um, write-offs. That might be the wrong term. That do make real estate a more attractive um, investment, or maybe um, a worthwhile way to diversify an investment portfolio. But I am like <laughs> just scratching the surface of my knowledge and understanding of these implications so um while taxes depress me um i know i have a lot to learn and i think it's very interesting and i think that um even (laughs) like even more um green investors um maybe don't understand the way that they could utilize these accounting tools to their benefit
0: Yeah, so Dave, from your perspective, what are like the big buckets of advantageous ways to use real estate to your benefit in the tax world?
3: Yeah, there's a a few different large strategic things that you can do from a real estate investment standpoint in taxes. Um, Can I pause real quick just to
0: make sure the audience understands? This isn't investing in your house. Correct. Right? This is investing in a investment real estate outside of your primary income residence. income producing. Right. Yep. Well, hopefully income producing. Yeah.
2: Though, as you've as you segued there, though, an investment into your own residence is probably one of the best thing a young person can do tax-wise. Yep.
3: Yep. Yeah. And, and so there's, you know, you can think of this two different ways. Uh, as Michael said, uh, you, you've got your personal residence, which affords you different deductions uh, that can help reduce your tax liability on an annual basis. Um, when we talk about income producing investment properties that can be land that can be commercial it can be hotels uh it can be storage units trailer parks that you can see a whole, uh, there's a whole a whole different uh a whole wide broad variety of what real estate investment might mean to to an individual and certain people have different strategies on what type of asset they might invest into but um, you know we'll does it have to be direct investing or
0: can it be investing through a fund or a REIT
3: yeah so uh, very good question uh, REITs are common treated very similarly to publicly traded stock uh, as far as how you invest in it um, there's uh, certain tax requirements and metrics that have to be met for for a fund to qualify as a REIT um, what I work the, the the type of entities that I do a lot of work with are I don't want to, you could call them like private placement, if you will. Uh, You've got a developer that's got a property they're they're eyeing up to purchase or otherwise develop, uh, and they go out and they solicit capital from friends, family, colleagues, people around town, investment uh, management firms can help source some of that capital, um, where you end up as a partner, a limited partner in the entity that purchases the property. So whether you own 1%
0: or 80%, you actually own a piece of the the bricks and the sticks. Correct. Yep. Right. Okay. Yep.
2: In that form, but in a REIT form, you own...
3: The REIT. The REIT. Right. Yeah, the piece but, of the
0: REIT. yeah that's why I wanted to make sure we understood what the audience. We're talking about actual direct investment, private placement mm-hmm. okay. in real estate Because a REIT today. would be
1: more just like an investment in a stock, right? Yep.
0: Correct. Yep. Okay. It's just secured by...
1: Yep.
3: Oh, real estate. The right. real estate. Yep.
1: Oh my God, I did it again. <laughs>
3: And then, of course, you could have uh, individuals that uh, went out and bought the house down the street and became a landlord, uh, own, a, own a residential property that's uh, you know, hopefully cash flowing for them. Um, uh, and that's, that's another way you can do it as well. Uh, there might be some legal uh, things that would cause you to maybe form a legal entity to purchase that property. Okay. Uh, but from a tax perspective, if you're the 100% owner of the house down the street, you rent it out to a third party it's going to be treated as your property uh, on your tax return. Great. All right. So what are those advantages? So Potential uh, advantages. Yeah. So, so we'll, we'll think about this uh, maybe to, to frame it a little bit. A lot of these advantages uh, from a current standpoint on your annual tax return, I'm going to talk about them as if you can take advantage of them each year. And typically if you're uh, someone who has invested in rental real estate, to be able to take some of these advantages or deductions, currently, you need to be designated a real estate professional. Um, and we could go through what those metrics are, but uh, you know that would be someone who spends most of their time in a real estate industry or some sort of an adjacent business. So, Kevin, you would be a real estate professional. Mm-hmm. Um, what that designation allows you to do is to group all your rental real estate activities into... One activity from a tax standpoint, and if you meet certain hours thresholds, uh, we'll call it 500 hours, or you are the person that's performing the majority of the activity related to the maintenance, upkeep, etc. of those properties, then you then you can treat the, those rental properties as non-passive activities, meaning all these tax advantages that we talk about, you can use them currently and uh, offset other buckets of income. So if you earn a W-2. You could offset some of that W two earned income. So, um, we'll 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 talk about it from in that frame of mind, uh, just to sort of set it here. But you know, so I've got my top five uh, tax advantages to uh, investing in real estate, and uh, you know, one is uh, very simple operating expenses are deductible. So your leasing costs, your marketing costs, travel, repairs and maintenance, utilities, if you have to cover utilities, all are deductible to offset the gross rents that you might bring in in a given year. Um, Mortgage interest, similar to your personal residence, um, but any interest, uh, it doesn't even necessarily need to be a mortgage per se, but uh, mortgage interest would be deductible to offset those gross rents. Um, there are potential situations where there could be some limitations on the amount of interest that you would be able to deduct in a given year, uh, but there's some ways to get around that, uh, making certain that's, elections.
2: That, I, I don't mean to jump yep. there, but, but uh, that's just based on the size of the portfolio, right? Correct. It's cap is 750 or a million dollars.
3: So that would be on your uh, personal residence. So in your personal residence, you're going to have a limitation on your mortgage interest deduction capped at the interest associated with 750k of but
2: staying in in line with the commercial Mm -hmm. investment what is the cap so certain
3: yeah certain taxpayers uh, and we'll 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 talk about maybe as an individual if you're an individual and you meet certain thresholds as far as the gross receipts that you or your businesses generate you might have a limitation on the amount of interest that you're able to deduct and that cap is I think 26 million in the most recent tax year. So um, most individual investors aren't going to hit that cap. Uh, so if that's the case, and you don't hit that that re- gross revenue threshold, all of your interest, no matter how much debt you have. So let's say you've got one commercial property and you've got two million dollars of debt, and you don't you're not generating through yourself or your businesses 26 million dollars in gross gross revenue, then all of the interest associated with that two million dollars of debt will be deductible. Mm-hmm. So just to like play that on the real world,
0: even though interest rates are rising right now, the benefit of interest rates rising is all of that expense
1: mm-hmm.
0: is deductible yep so it's it's very different from you know Main Street where interest rates rise and your cost of uh, capital is rising and you're not getting any direct benefit from that increase. the real estate investor is... If he has more than, in the Main Street world, $750,000 of debt, able to dollar for dollar reduce tax liability mm-hmm. by the increased yep. interest, right? Yep. But the
2: proviso is that you have to have the income to, to, carry, it. to, to carry that and to take the benefit of that.
3: Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, yeah. You, so you've got a cash flow enough to cover mm-hmm. those uh, payments. But then you get um, the benefit of you reducing. You get the benefit your,
2: of reducing. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the, in the perfect scenario, you're, you're cash flowing enough that you can make all your payments and generating a little bit of a cash flow return. But from a tax perspective, you're generating losses through interest deduction and depreciation, which we'll talk and about in other any things. scenario
2: like that, in typical mortgage interest expense, the bulk of the interest is paid in the front portion mm-hmm. of the loan. Mm-hmm.
3: Yep. So, so we've the, only. The, the
2: big benefit comes in the front.
0: Correct. So we've only covered two of your top five. Mm hmm. And we've already outlined a scenario whereby you could be invested, cash flowing, and from a tax perspective, showing net losses. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing.
2: Life is good. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Can't do that in Russia. (laughs) And
0: Paige, up until six months ago, which shame on Michael and I maybe, but up until CCI 101, this was a foreign concept.
1: Well, that was two months ago, but nope one yeah
0: in round numbers within the last yeah quarter or two right like foreign concept
1: yeah um well like i had heard mention of it i had heard men you know um deductions for interest deductions for depreciation but i didn't like until you actually work through all of those numbers you don't see how significant that can become yeah if done correctly And I think, um, and maybe it's because we're not accountants to our clients, but a lot of our clients, I don't even know that are taking full advantage of this. No,
0: they Mm -hmm. probably aren't. Mm -hmm. The ones who are asking us for tax advice are definitely not (laughs) taking advantage of it because our answer is call Dave. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's just call Dave. Yep.
3: Okay, so that's so, okay, two. to t- t-
1: number three.
3: And that, that, that leads into uh, maybe something that's low-hanging fruit that uh, folks like you can suggest to your clients is uh, you know depreciation. This is number three. But more, more importantly or specifically, a cost segregation study. So um, a cost segregation study will uh, take a look at the building that you've invested in or purchased. And uh, in the tax world, we've got different buckets of assets. So you've got your building. You've got your land. And you've got all what we'll call the personal property that goes along with it. And so your land, not depreciable. uh, So you want to limit the amount of purchase price that you would allocate to the land asset. Uh, Your building, generally depreciable over 39 years, straight line, no acceleration on that. Uh, Any equipment that's within the property. Um, And that can be machinery. It can be, um, if it's a hotel, it can be all the furniture and fixtures. You can take... Uh, bonus depreciation, what we call bonus depreciation, in the year that those pieces of property are purchased. And so most recently and for the last few years, that bonus depreciation rule allows you to expense 100% of the cost associated with those qualifying assets. In the first year? In the first year, yep.
2: I don't mean to... Just rub it in, but that's part of the Trump tax cut.
0: <laughs> <Jesus>. <laughs> he was hell bent on getting um, that guy's name in on this podcast. No,
2: no, no, I'm just saying, just saying. But yeah. you see, the, the, the tax tried advantage it, of expensing that within the first mm-hmm. year
1: I, wasn't, the, wasn't that a bipartisan CARES Act thing? Uh, I think, I, didn't. Fact it, um, but didn't it right. come getting, out in the CARES I'm getting Act? A little there older was a my significant,
3: was there was a significant clarification for real estate investors that was made in the CARES Act, mm-hmm. and yeah. um, that is what we call qualified improvement property. And so, this qualified improvement property was, when TCJA was first drafted, this category of property was left out of what would qualify for bonus depreciation. And what qualified improvement property has come to be known as is any improvements to a non-residential property uh, to the interior. So uh, it, it can't include elevators, it can't include um, structural things like the load-bearing walls, etc. But all your fit outs, your, your, your drywall, your doors, your cabinetry, whatever it may be, uh, that is what we would call qualified improvement property. And as part of the CARES Act they fixed that and there is actually an opportunity and I've got an example what we might touch on uh, that kind of talk, that where I talk about cost segregation and some of those benefits, but they fixed that uh, as part of the CARES Act in 2020, you lose track of these years now, um, and it allowed taxpayers to go back and fix or amend 19 returns to take advantage of all this qualified improvement property, improvements they made to their uh, commercial buildings or hotels, et cetera. Uh, they were now able to expense it 100% in the year it was placed in service. Mm-hmm which is an incredible thing.
2: It's an incredible thing and it you know when you look at it uh, over the overall portfolio it really does mm-hmm. drive down those costs.
0: Yep. Yep, but on a, you know, macro level make a 39 million dollar investment every single year for the next 39 years we're taking a depreciation
3: deduction on our taxes of a million bucks. Yep. Yep. Yeah, if you, I mean if you're if you're doing uh if you're a repeat investor Um, You should be able to recreate, in a bonus depreciation environment, you should be able to recreate tax losses from your real estate year after year, each time you reinvest in something new.
2: In a a perfect world, that's straight line depreciation. But under the cost segregation component, you can take a a very large amount of that Mm -hmm. for tax loss. And remember, your interest rates are highest, the amount of money that you're paying in interest. So your tax implication, Mm -hmm. you're making money but you're not paying taxes on it, which is one of the huge benefits of that.
0: Right.
1: And, well, get to four and five, and then I have a question on the depreciation of cost segregation and if it's always done like rapidly in the first year, yep. or if there are some fixtures that have to be done over their usable lifespan. Yep. But we'll do four and five first. Yeah,
3: I can certainly, yeah, yeah, I've got a, uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about, a little bit more detail on cost aggregation. Uh, the next one would be, um, you know, you, if you sell Apple stock, uh, you're not going to defer that gain. You're going to recognize that gain in the year that you uh, make the sale. Real estate there's is, is the only industry with this potential beneficial treatment. Uh, with regards to any gains that you generate on the sale of a building through a 1031 uh, like-kind exchange. Right. And uh, you can roll your gains for decades uh, into uh, new investments and defer further recognition of that gain and having to pay tax on it. And um, you know, it might, might sound a little bit morbid, but if you've got an older uh, investor um, and they've been rolling 1031 gains for the last 25 years, Honestly, instead of you know selling everything and exiting to transfer cash to the next generation, you want to keep it in that real estate because when you pass away and it gets uh, transitioned down to your next generation, uh, they get a step up on the basis of the real estate and that gain never has to be recognized. So
2: they never pay taxes on the unrealized appreciation.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Spectacular. mm
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> um- <laughs> He's like, it's talking about... Beautiful, like, uh, yes. cab from Nappers. On the
1: <laughs> yeah. it was, like, spectacular.
2: spectacular. You know the great thing
1: about a, dying? A, <laughs> well,
2: no, but it's all, it's all buried in these things. And if you don't know that they're there, you pass them by. Mm-hmm. But you can continue to keep the real estate there. And that's why it's so important to consider the gifting component of
0: that. Mm-hmm. Yep. And we don't want to go down too big of a rabbit right. hole. But the 1031 theory about... Getting to a stepped-up basis for the next generation requires you to get to the next generation. In the meantime, taxes are going up. Mm-hmm. I mean, in my short lifetime, they have not gone down. Mm-hmm. So there is an argument to be made that 1031 is not the end-all, be-all of tax it, advantages.
2: It's it's not, but it's a tool. It is mm-hmm. a great
1: tool. It's yes. a
3: great and tool. So all of these things, things are tools. That
1: scenario when that person passes away. Is there a transfer tax to the younger generation?
3: Uh, it depends on what the value is of the assets that are being transferred. If they're over the lifetime exclusion amount, you could potentially have some gift tax or inheritance tax uh, implications. But if you're under the exclusion amount, you, you're not going to pay the inheritance tax. Uh, and oh, by the way, this property that you bought in or, you know, the first property that you bought in 1975 for $100,000, it's now worth five million. That appreciation never has to be recognized by so anybody. So when
2: it goes to the heirs, it gets a new basis. Yep. A the new basis would be $5 million. Dollars. Mm-hmm. So it went to them for nothing and they're just sitting there with $5 million of tax free money.
3: Yep. Uh, the fifth...
1: there's anybody out there that wants to adopt me, I'm yeah. still here. <laughs> you
0: know, there is somebody who wants to <laughs> adopt do. you. I don't think they have tens of millions of dollars
3: invested <laughs> yeah. in real estate, though. No. <laughs> yeah the uh, the fifth benefit here uh is uh what we call the, the the qualified business income deduction so as part of the tax cuts and jobs act there was this deduction put in place for uh people who own small businesses or investments through llc's or s corporations where um it was meant to put the effective rate of tax on that income that business income on par with the um C-Corp rate, which had been decreased to 21%. But essentially what you get to do is take a haircut of 20% of the income earned in that given year as a deduction. So it, it decreases that maximum um, marginal income tax rate by 20% on that business income that you generated. Cute
1: operate a business and own real estate as part of that operating business? It can, it's
3: any operating business.
2: It goes for any uh, any operating business or any any piece of equipment or anything of that nature.
0: Hmm. Also a beautiful thing.
2: Mm -hmm. Yes, huge. Huge.
1: Oh my (laughs) God. It is off the rails. It's so hot for Trump today. It's, it's
2: uncomfortable. unbelievable. No, it's not hot for Trump. It's Trump. It's hot for this piece tax of legislation policy. in tax policy, which is uh, uh, tremendous advantages and tremendous tools for, for businesses. They allow them to grow. They allow them to have a little bit of flexibility and continue their operation. And they don't have someone kind of getting in their way to try to mess it up and the dark side of this is as we were talking earlier the trump that act has a sunset at the at the end of 2025 mm-hmm. all that stuff goes away and it goes back to what it used to be mm-hmm. so we're operating in a window of what would that be now three years two years two years we're operating in a window that
0: there's okay. a lot of stuff that people may, should be considering. It may or may not go away. Let's let's worry about what is actually <laughs> well. In isn't tax that the whole today. idea
2: of protecting yourself in, against taxes? Is foreseeing the future or what's coming down the road? Yep. Am I wrong?
3: Yep. Yeah. We we uh, you know we have conversations with our clients. Let's look at a three year projection, a five year projection, because uh, in a lot of cases, some of these sunsets that phase out in 2026, I believe, um, will be impactful from a cash flow perspective. And I can't believe I'm going down this rabbit hole, is the
0: firm, and I know you probably shouldn't or don't want to speak on behalf of Schneider Downs, but just at a macro level, to (laughs) Michael's point, are you advocating on a policy basis in order to protect what you think are the best interests of your clients, or are you simply remaining a third party and dealing with whatever rules are? And playing by them,
3: uh, we generally have to advise based on what we know today, right? And uh, you know, so when we when we talk about a three year or five year plan, uh, you know, you could make any guess about what might happen in twenty twenty four or thereafter. Um, but we're going to plan for what's in place today, and uh, let the you know when things potentially change down the road, we pivot. Does the firm but, but you know, wouldn't
2: be doing your job if you didn't tell them this is a potential. But issue. no, that's
0: not what my question was. My question was. Does the firm think about three years, five years out, and say, "The best thing for our clients are X, Y, and Z"? So we're going to advocate at a political level to keep these things in
3: place. Um, or do you stay away from that. You know the only the only area where we would indirectly get uh, involved with um, you know lobbying or some other type of influence would be through the PI, PICPA or A I C P A and our support of those organizations. Okay. Which Oftentimes, put forth sort of, uh, we'll say, common sense uh, suggestions when it when those uh, suggestions are solicited by the IRS or, or legislators.
1: This is more industry advocacy yep. rather than.
3: Very similar
0: um, to yeah, our like world, NAP, like yeah. NAOP or NAR is always mm-hmm. saying, "Hey, red alert! You need to be paying attention yep. to this and yep. elect officials who are paying attention to it." Mm-hmm. So that is a good. Use of political conversation in the Trade Secrets podcast. <laughs> all right. So the top five are operating expenses, mortgage interest, depreciation. We're going to segue, I think, next into a subset of that. Mm-hmm. 1031s and QBI, mm-hmm. qualified business. Go ahead. Where are you going?
2: No, I was going, uh, there's, there's, those are all wonderful, wonderful things. Mm-hmm. But like anything in the tax code, aren't there some dark side to it? Isn't the the, the, the oh, Lord giveth jumping. and the IRS taketh <laughs> away? You're, you're jumping
3: <laughs> he's over. Not, he all, he's all over. No, my, oh, I, I, yeah.
2: I didn't get No, no, we're good. Memo, we're good.
3: Away. We're good. No, we're going to talk about some of the givebacks down the road. <laughs> he just her he yes. under the bus on yes. yes. her birthday? Yeah, yeah. yeah that's <laughs> I, the I think he, he did.
2: He, How did he throw her under the
0: bus? He was like, I didn't get the memo. Did you send a memo? Was there a memo? I got a memo. There was a discussion. That is hysterical. Anyway. It's a
2: discussion. These guys don't listen to me, so... Oh, okay, so we go, if we're gonna get that she later, I, to, don't, I don't want to. She forgot we don't to, have to. We'll, we'll, yeah, we'll yeah, let's copy save that. We'll good get one to that later because <laughs> that's, <a, laughs> yep. that's like the
1: how's it fail? <laughs> the
2: headlamp right. of the oncoming train. So, All
0: right. so top five of uh, further interest to this conversation, I yes. think, is digging a little bit deeper. And candidly, we talked. I mean, we could have you on just to talk about each one of those five mm-hmm. for a full. 45 minutes, but at the same time, we want to keep it light and fun, Um, but digging deeper a little bit into cost seg, Mm -hmm. which um, Totem has taken great advantage of over the last two years and is near and dear to our hearts. Where can you kind of dig deeper on that? I think you might even have an example to talk about.
3: Yeah, so cost segregation studies, um, common tool, uh, something we suggest to all our clients when they purchase a building doesn't have to even be at purchase it can be a couple years later when the t- you know when there might be a reason to generate some tax losses to offset income from other sources or what have you um well but- you hit a key point right there this is a cost seg study
0: mm-hmm. so we, we're paying somebody schneider downs mm-hmm. to come take a look at a situation and say here are the opportunities or challenges ahead this is not going to show up in TurboTax. New. No, no, this is this is next level yep. accounting. Yeah. Because um, Paige with her CCIM uh, cash flow worksheet there, like it talks about depreciation and it brings up the concept, but then it doesn't really say, oh, by the way, here's this like whole other industry that's just cost seg. Mm-hmm. And before you can take advantage of it, you actually have to pay someone to. Study it for you.
3: Yep. Yep. So there are highly trained engineers that will go on site, look at the property, um, break it down, sort of component by component. And there's, you know, a whole several hundred pages of IRS guidance that sort of defines what they're able to do and the methodologies that they should use uh, in order to complete their study. Um, but what they do is, say you buy. A, this is a great example. You buy a, a, a tw- or a. You buy a property and you put some cash into it, construction costs, renovation, etc., to the total tune of, we'll call it $22 million. Okay. And what they'll do is they'll break that that cost basis. So original purchase price on the existing structure plus any of the construction costs that went into it. They'll break that down into the various buckets of assets that might be the 39-year building or the 15-year but eligible for bonus land improvement property um, or... Uh, In the case of a hotel, which is what this example might uh, is, you've got your furniture and fixtures uh, that you had significant spend on that all qualify for the 100% bonus depreciation. So um, they'll go through, they'll do their study. They should provide you as as the investor or the uh, person uh, managing the accounting for uh, the entity that owns the property uh, a listing asset by asset. Sometimes it's several hundred pages long. Of uh, all the different pieces of property or units of property that went into that building and they'll give you based on their study and the the methods that they're required to use what that life should be and then what the uh, tax treatment should be associated with each of those units of property okay
1: so and my question was and I might you might have covered it and I just need reiteration but what's the difference like how do you know when it's gonna be 100% bonus depreciation where you can write it all off in year one versus what qualifies for an item that would have a depreciation straight line over its usable life.
3: Yep, so the tax code defines how you need, how you must treat your depreciable assets. So. Um, Gen- your building your building structure is always going to be straight line, 39-year. Now, we talked a little bit about qualified improvement property to the interior of the structure. That's a separate subcategory. But building's going to be 39-year straight line. Uh, and then that that's like the shell. Yep, the shell. And that's a, that's a, a non-residential property. Right.
2: Residential properties are 27 and
3: a half. Correct, yep. So you've got a little bit shorter life for the residential properties. But this is like the concrete and the bricks yeah. and the... Sticks just like the outside of the the roof, the HVAC systems, electrical, plumbing, uh, generally all falls into that building or building system category. Okay.
2: Uh, Just a personal question, site work does qualify as depreciable, is that correct? Land is not. Land is not. Site does.
3: Uh, Land improvements. And there's going to be some specific lines that you need to draw and figure out what is site, what is excavation, uh-huh. and then what is improvement, land improvement. So, you know, your excavation sodding, doesn't. your parking lot. Uh, it depends on. I think there's actually some really technical rules as far as yeah. like how deep down you go in terms of excavation. Mm-hmm. But um, like if you're changing the shape of the side of the mountain, that might not be uh, depreciable. But if you're putting in a parking lot and planting grass and pushing a little bit of dirt around here, here or there that would that would qualify as a land improvement mm-hmm. which you'd potentially get your hundred percent bonus depreciation on so you've got you've got your defined lives your defined treatment so you've got your building you've got your land improvement which uh, the code would tell you has a fifteen year life but the code would also tell you it's included in the property that qualifies for one hundred percent bonus depreciation um, you've got your equipment so if it's a commercial property and there's some you know electrical work in there that can somehow be tied to the operation of equipment within the facility that will you, you know you you as a landlord uh, you you know you might ha- you might have responsibility or ownership over the electrical work your tenant has the equipment but if your electrical work is specific to the equipment you could potentially throw that in there the electrical work is a seven-year property qualifying for a hundred percent bonus furniture and fixtures five-year hundred percent bonus um, and so those are the, the Typically, the, the four or five buckets we see coming out of a cost segregation study. And there's IRS rules that tell you how to treat them. Um,
1: outside of, so outside of the building, what, is, what doesn't qualify for the 100% bonus? Uh,
3: the land. You well, won't be able to appreciate the value of the land. Right. Um, it's really, it's, today, it's, it's just the building structure. Uh, and
1: everything else can be fully depreciated in year one.
3: Everything that those engineers go in and find and categorize in those other buckets. was non-building. That's yep.
2: wild. How do they treat tenant improvements? So let's say you have a tenant that's going to give you a million dollars to fit out this space. Mm-hmm. And there's the TIs attached. Now in the past, they took it over the life of the lease. Is that not correct?
3: Uh, it that You could go down several different approaches to that. Uh, it, it would depend on the terms in the lease. If you, are, if you as the landlord incur a million dollars on a tenant improvement, and you own that tenant improvement, doesn't transfer to the lessee, then that tenant improvement for, for, for your depreciation purposes is treated as yours. If it's to the interior of the property, I would call that qualified improvement property and you could take 100% bonus depreciation. If you're handing lessee a check oh. for a million dollars, different situation, or if, uh, you know, it depends on the language in the lease, but if you've got a situation where, um, you know, it's clear that the lessee has the benefits and burdens of the the improvements made to that property, uh, even though maybe funded by landlord, you could have potentially different treatment there where uh, tenant, lessee, is the owner of the property and depreciates it, landlord amortizes the cost associated over the life of the lease. So it it all comes down to the language. We would typically advise, where that's going to be an expense related to signing up a new tenant, uh, that you would want to make it clear in the language of the agreement, we're going to pay this million dollars for the improvements, we're going to own it, we're going to get the depreciation benefits of it, uh, to make it very clear. Mm-hmm. Most leases, unfortunately, don't typically break that out no. as explicitly, but that would be a, like a best practice that we would advise our clients as the owners of the property to, to make sure that they're... But if a at.
1: tenant is going to pay for their own buildouts, that is something. Even though they don't own the property, they would own the buildout, and the tenant, yep. as a tenant, could depreciate yep those costs.
3: Correct. Yep.
1: That's our next podcast, And that's uh, uh, and that's <laughs> that's very similar. That that
3: would uh, potentially for your if, if you're if you're representing the tenant and they uh, fund and otherwise own the improvements that are made to the property, they get the depreciation. Um, Potentially 100% as qualified improvement property in your room.
1: Hmm. That's I had no idea.
3: That's why
0: we're doing it. I have a feeling oh there's a lot of people on this listening audience who don't have a clue about most of this stuff. Um, the 22 million dollar building yes. slash investment. Yes. You buy, say, let's just say it's half and half. 11 million dollar acquisition. And then eleven million dollars of improvements, but say there's five years in between when you bought the property and when you decided to actually improve the property. Mm-hmm. Can you do cost sag the
3: first year and then again in the sixth year? Um, you can do it. You can do it anytime, uh, but you can do it once. Okay. So if you don't do it in year one, maybe you, you're generating enough deduction um, you know otherwise to generate a tax loss in year one and then say in year five you have an exit somewhere else that generated a lot of income or gain and you don't want to have an outlay of cash in that given year okay you can go you can at that point in time uh, have a cost segregation study completed and we would uh, from a tax reporting perspective complete what's known as a accounting method change which allows you to deduct everything that you could have deducted in year one if you had appropriately classified all these different buckets of property. So uh, you look backwards the five years? Yep, so you look backwards the, the, to, to year one, year two, year three, you catch it up. And so you can take a huge write-off in the year that you complete this accounting method change uh, to help offset that other event that might be generating otherwise a, a taxable income situation. But you can't do it twice? Can't do it twice. Nope, hmm. you get one, one shot, and uh, you know, you've, got, you've got some options from a timing perspective.
1: Just so I can make sure I'm understanding that, so say you you buy, a, what if you buy the building in year one, $11 million, and then in year two, you do $11 million worth of improvements, but you don't take the bonus depreciation, you don't do the cost segregation mm-hmm. study. But then in year five of ownership, once it's been improved for three years, you have an exit somewhere else that results in 10 million in capital gains, mm-hmm. and you don't have any other way to offset that gain. You could go back to year two, in year five, you could offset, you could bonus depreciate in year five all of the things that you spent in year two for the
3: improvements. Yep, yep. you catch it up to where you should have been if you had classified those assets appropriately in year one.
1: So the cost seg study, you, you would say- You just amend
2: those returns?
3: You, uh, the the method change procedures, when you when it results in a favorable adjustment for the taxpayer, you get to take that entire adjustment on that current year tax return. So you don't have to go back and amend. You just blow it through as a deduction item in the year that you complete the study and complete the method change.
1: So when people come to you and want to do a cost segregation study, do you ask them, like, forward thinking in your portfolio, are you planning any exits that's gonna result in a substantial capital gain? And advise them and say, hey, maybe you want to do this that year?
3: Yep. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, you know, we've got we've got certain clients that we've advised over, you know, several years, hey, you know, we didn't do a cost seg on this on this building in 2017, uh, oh, you're going to generate significant taxable income in 22. Or you, you know, at the time we were, you know, he might have, the client may have had break even or losses from 17 to 22, so we're not going to really push it uh, because you're already not paying any tax, no reason to really drive that loss any further uh, if there's not an ability to take it back and recover prior income. So you would say, well, let's hold this in our back pocket until there's a time when we need it. And then uh, in the year that we need it, we'll, we'll advise on that and suggest that now's the time to do it.
1: That's interesting. Mm-hmm.
3: So this this example, um, great example of cost seg and the power of uh, what that can do for a taxpayer and an investor. $22 million building, um, You that was total cost basis. Of that uh, approximately, um, seven million went into improvement um and that's at you know that's excluding the cost of the f f f the furniture and fixtures it was a hotel um and also the land improvement so uh originally went into service in 19 before the cares act fixed this rule with regards to the qualified improvement property okay um so we weren't able to take bonus depreciation the 100 ex- percent uh expensing uh on our 2019 tax return related to the renovation costs of this building that went above and beyond original purchase price. Sure. CARES Act came in. Um, uh, they they uh, issued some procedures whereby taxpayers could now go back and amend those 19 returns that were filed in March or April of 2020 and take advantage of the fix that was put into the CARES Act legislation that allowed qualified improvement property to um, qualify for bonus. So originally, uh, we had 13 and a half... Million dollars allocated to building. Uh, CARES Act comes out. We had our cost, we had done a cost segregation study. We said, guys, you need to go back out there and revise that study because now we can take bonus on all this additional property. And ultimately, we ended up moving of the 13 million in the original study, we moved another 7 million to qualified improvement property as a deduction in year one. So it was seven million plus five million on, on the furniture and fixtures plus another million and a half on the land improvement. So add that all up. You're looking at about thirteen million dollars of deduction in year one on and a twenty-two million dollar property. Can that
0: deduction only be used retroactively, or can you save it for future
3: years? Um, it depends on your tax situation. So uh, part of the CARES Act also. Allowed taxpayers to who generated a loss in nineteen or twenty to go back and carry back that that tax loss to previous years and get refunds if they had paid tax. Okay. Uh, you but could. It, sorry. Yep. You could elect out of that and carry it forward to offset future income. Um, you know, in this example, it was perfect timing. Generate the loss, carry it back, generate some significant refunds at a time when cash was needed uh, due to COVID. So. Yeah. it's Incredible. Wow. Yeah.
2: But it still can be carried forward though
3: it can be yeah yep yeah and is there any uh sunset on that sunset on that Mm-mm. That's an amazing thing. no, it used to be twenty years and it would expire uh that is that limit is now gone um you can carry it back carry it forward indefinitely
0: all right, so this I mean, I feel like we could deep dive into any one of these topics a bunch, but I know Michael has got he wants to be the um the bad news bearer. Um, it's
2: not bad news. It's just you should be aware. Of it.
0: Mm-hmm. To kind of round out the conversation, at least for <laughs> tax episode not a low one. Note
1: with Michael. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, we'll make it happy before it all comes to an end. But drum roll.
2: Well, it's recapture. When there's a when you finally do have that day of reckoning, now you can transfer that in the form of a 1031, correct? Mm-hmm. Yep. It, transfer that. But if you have a taxable event, the IRS gets to come back. And say, okay, you took all these losses. You did this. We were we were so nice to you. We did all this stuff for you. Now I want my vig. Mm-hmm. And can you please explain mm-hmm.
0: that? Well, use the same example.
3: Right? Yeah. So in that case, um, you know, the the issue is that the property that would qualify for bonus depreciation is what, and I'm I'm sorry to reference tax code, but it's what we would call 1245 property, and it's your personal property, the, the stuff you took 100 percent bonus depreciation on, when that is sold to the extent that some of the purchase price is allocated to the property where you took hundred percent bonus depreciation you're going to have to recognize that gain as 1245 recapture and that gain that portion of the gain that falls into that bucket is going to be taxed at your ordinary rates Do you
2: get that it's I not capital so. gain it's income
0: yep correct so, so yeah. all the savings in this cost seg study on the 22 million dollar hotel if in the next year they sell it for twenty-two million again, just to keep it simple, mm-hmm. anything they um, depreciated or took advantage of as a loss, they now have to pay ordinary income on as part of the disposition of the twenty-two million.
3: In general, the bonus depreciation stuff that's going to come back in as ordinary income in the year they sell it. Yeah. Uh, for uh, you know, when you're when you're negotiating purchase price on that exit. Um, there are two buckets you want to try to push as much purchase price to as possible. One being land. As the seller, you want to put as much to land as possible because that will just generate cap gain based on the difference of the cost basis in the land and the value attributed to the land. And also building. So uh, the building that gets depreciated over 39 years, when you recapture that depreciation, you get a friendlier rate. It's not the 20% cap gain rate, but it's the... 25% Uh, 25% unrecaptured Section 1250 rate. Um, so to the extent you allocate purchase price to the building, and you've taken depreciation on that building over straight line 39 year, when that's recaptured, you pay 25% on the amount of recaptured. Then beyond that, if there's additional purchase price beyond the original basis, that's capital gain. But all your personal property, if you, in your negotiations, allocate purchase price to your FF and E, to your land improvements, whatever. Uh, you know, potentially that's going to come back to you as twelve forty-five recapture at ordinary rates. So you want to, there's there's a negotiation there. And on the flip side, the buyers, they want as much to to the bonus property as possible, right? Because mm-hmm. then they can yeah. yeah.
2: And then the cap gain. The, there's another part about that that if you go over a certain amount, isn't there the Obamacare tax case? Oh yes. In? Yeah. Okay, so it's not really a 20% cap gain. You're dealing with a 23.6% cap gain. Mm-hmm. You start adding up these numbers; they get to be fairly significant.
3: Yep. Yeah, and if you're uh, if you're involved in the business, if you're that real estate pro, um, and you're, you've you've got what we call material participation, you're not going to be subject to that 3.8% net investment income tax from from the Obama uh, the Obamacare legislation. Um, the hook, but if you're if but you're just a general you're sold, if you're a general LP investor and you're not involved in the business and you get allocated gain from from the exit on your K one or whatever, uh, you are going to be subject but to that. But
2: that's for the uh, that's for the real estate related income. Is that mm-hmm. not correct? Yep. If it were for something like a capital gain based on a stock transfer, you would be subject to that.
3: Yes, absolutely. Yeah, you're all. Yeah, if uh, that's a good good uh, comparison there where if you're if you're involved in the rental real estate business you can avoid that 3.8% based on how involved you are you're never going to escape the ta- the 3.8% tax on your sales stock your interest income you, etc you, you
2: can use your your losses to go into other diversified components of your portfolio but you could only avoid that particular tax, tax if it's real estate related, if it goes to something else that you did that had a taxable event, then you get hammered with it. So,
1: I mean, not to dumb this down, um, but it seems like this is just, these cost segregations are just another way to like kick the can down the road. That's true. And does it get worse paying the ordinary income tax at the end when tax rates, as Kevin mentioned earlier, Don't generally go down. So, is it? Is there? Is there ever an instance where you would say to someone, maybe, bonus depreciation in year one doesn't make sense because we're going into a democratic four years. You plan to sell in the next four years, and they're going to rake you over the coals with your recapture tax rate. <laughs>
3: Uh, no, that would, you know, if someone... Just, I mean, as a loose uh, example. Right, yeah, loose no. Example. That's, well, maybe, uh, what if. Absolutely, that comes up in conversation. So if there's a three-year horizon on the property and they don't need to generate losses in year one, year two, and they just sort of want, you know, a consistent consistent tax result, then we won't, we won't force a cost segregation, the cost of a cost segregation and everything else on them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what, what could, you know, you mentioned kick the can down the road. Theoretically, if we stick with that hotel example, you you get the benefit all in year one, the FF&E related to the hotel is not going to be worth anything 10 years down the road. So hopefully at that point in time, you're not allocating any purchase price or any significant purchase price to the FF&E to have to deal with the recapture. So you do end up overall uh, in a better position where you took those deductions at the ordinary rate and you don't have to recapture much of it at that ordinary rate. You recapture at the 25% rate until you're above and beyond, and then you're in the cap gains rate of
2: 20%. But then there's always that you're kicking the can down the road is a, a very bonafide strategy because it's always what is your money worth today mm-hmm. versus what your money going to be worth tomorrow. And if you do get to that ultimate end, when you can actually, if your gift tax and your transfer tax would be large enough, mm-hmm. you would be able to avoid taxes up to a point of, and currently right now, if you did it, you could avoid it $11 million per person. Mm-hmm.
1: Now, another qu- so if you do a cost segregation, can you elect to just take bonus depreciation on the FF&E that in 10 years will have you no could. value? Yeah. Yep. You yeah. And not c- do it on the land improvements yeah, and things you- like that to avoid that recapture, Yep, ideally?
3: Yep, you, uh, you have the ability to elect out of taking bonus depreciation on each of the classes of assets. Hmm. So you can take it on the FF&E uh, and not on anything else if you want to. Uh, and that's where you know you would get involved in some sort of uh, significant planning and, and, and projection type work uh, to figure out what that might look like and what the benefits of that would be. So bringing it full circle,
0: we started with Bitcoin and FTX <laughs> bankruptcy. I think, suffice to say, this has been a great oh. conversation about how important tax is to real estate investing. Like mm-hmm. One can't happen without the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and for anybody who's listening, if you're investing in real estate, you need to be talking to somebody like Dave on a very regular basis. Because we certainly only peeled back, like, the first layer of the onion, not the, the multiple layers. Um, yeah. So it's been awesome. Bourbon. This is the first time we did Blanton's, which everybody thinks is, like, the best. Hardest I mean, to get. I
1: think it's, like, tried and true. Yeah. Just like an old faithful.
0: Just like an old
2: I faithful? I think,
1: yes. <laughs> oh, I, I,
2: I, I, I like it. Blends is a Buffalo Trace product.
0: Yes, Michael always reads right? the bottle.
1: It's like a yeah. White um, over here.
0: You get the little thing. What was our letter today? The letter.
2: It's not oh, oh our letter is an N. Okay, so um, there are eight different horse tops or bottle tops that they have, and they're all in different stages of horse race if you collect them together. And each one of them has the letter of Blanton's. This was an N, but it's not the, N, the One of the N's has, yes, the N has the, uh, what do you call that, an
0: umlaut. Yeah, Matt's no, the apostrophe driving nuts right now from that bottle in the microphone. Yeah, so <laughs> this is like yeah, sounded so, like a freight train, but, probably.
1: Um, Keep spinning it.
0: Anyways, we're not gonna figure out the whole race, but I think the N's the easiest one to get. The N is That's what i am heard, Is that i heard. Yeah, yeah
2: but the there's uh, the uh, so get. there's people that can collect that, and it's a it's a great
0: place. How about you, Dave? Winner? Or uh, it, loser? Yeah, it's
3: good. Um, I'm not a, a huge uh, bourbon connoisseur, as I explained, but I said put it in my cup and I'll drink it, and I didn't make any weird faces <laughs> when I took a sip, so we're good. We could fix that. That's more than yeah. any of us would say, and
1: there is one on that There's shelf one on that, that shelf. would take we can, me down. We can change
3: <laughs> we, that. We got the weird We face. had to
1: stop filming a podcast because we all <laughs> tasted it beforehand, and like simultaneously all three of us gagged. She asked for
3: a bucket. Oh, yes. It
1: was. Well, I didn't ask for a bucket, but I was never going to take Her sip that. Her body language
0: was asking for a bucket. Yeah. Um, all right. Last thing. So now that we've started taking guests and we have a great name, um, what is your trade secret? Like if you look at your career or your current business or Schneider Downs' success, what when you hear trade secret, what's that mean to you? Um,
3: trade secret to me uh, means not uh, being afraid to take on something challenging. I feel like every time I've grown in my career or helped clients in a significant way, it's because uh, we took on some sort of significantly challenging project and weren't afraid to do that and to experience something new uh, that we could learn from and then apply in multiples down the road. So um, I would say it's, it's not being afraid of a, of a challenge and, and moving forward and learning. That's awesome. That is fantastic. Mm-hmm. I love it. Mm-hmm. All well, right. This was great. Me-
1: this was, I mean, I am fascinated with your memorization of the tax code i'm <laughs> um, sure you've had many wild saturday nights of reading <laughs> um, but that's really impressive and i i found this super interesting um you know hopefully other people i'm sure other people will as well um but thanks so much for yeah, coming. glad
3: to be here this thank you yeah cheers no, thanks thank for joining thank us thank you very yep. much for joining us thank you cheers. thank you thank you, thank you. Our, oh, our savior that's
2: a, against
0: the IRS. That's
1: a, <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, I can't have a single tax conversation without hard alcohol ever.
0: <laughs> well, now you should be excited about tax versus I used to loathe it.
2: Oh, uh, taxes! No. Fascinating I mean, stuff.
1: It's fascinating. I mean, fascinating.
0: All right, Paige is going to start investing in real estate. Mm-hmm. Start taking advantage of some taxes. I'm going to call my friend Dave. Yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. And uh, to our fans out there, we look forward to seeing you soon. And uh, it'll be episode. 18 next time so all right happy birthday to kelsey and that's a wrap talk to you soon